0: Previously on Liminal Criminals Kensington Hawthorne, the scion of arms magnate Reginald Hawthorne, was sent away to Ironwood Academy, his ancestral boarding school. There, he quickly developed a passion for music. Against his father's wishes, he continued to pursue this calling, eventually falling in with a burgeoning countercultural scene in the long-abandoned resort town of Lake Cudgel, There, He realized his ambition to create performances that would shock the world, an ambition that was snatched from him by a neurological disorder that forced him to play only smooth jazz. Crestfallen, he abandoned his dream and went on to major in business at Columbia. Kensington rediscovered his passion during his junior year of college when he took up jazz piano as a way to supplement his slashed parental allowance. While this new career supported him throughout the rest of his time at Columbia and the rest of his early 20s, his inability to shock audiences with smooth jazz performances drove him deeper and deeper into bitter rage. This culminated in him fatally striking back against the would-be hitman his father had hired as part of a Hawthorne Rite of Passage. In the wake of this violence, Kensington knew that his newest, truest calling would lie not in music, but in murder. How did the smooth jazz killer terrorize New York during the early 1990s? More importantly, how did his murderous tenure come to an end? We'll find out on today's episode. I'm Sam Putnam, and you're listening to Liminal Criminals. we have little information about Kensington Hawthorne's state of mind between his first kill in self-defense and his first murder. The soon-to-be serial killer became reclusive during this period of time and kept no legible records of his thoughts. The few times he interacted with people, he seemed distant and largely detached from his surroundings. I dropped the package off for Kensington one time reported courier Jesse Nolan. He just kept staring straight ahead, not seeming to take anything in. I had to shove the box into his hands and scream at him for him to hold on to it, and then when he did, he just sort of kept staring at me. Kensington's performances were just as strange as the rest of his behavior during this time. While his piano playing remained as pleasant and smooth as ever, he had taken to giggling as he played, as though laughing at a joke only he could hear. This continued for several weeks, until he finished a set at the Third Street Piano Bar by breaking into full-fledged laughter, standing up, and announcing to the audience, I know what I must do, before walking off of the stage. His confused audience couldn't know that the man who had provided their ambient music for the night was about to cut a bloody swath through New York history. The first known victim of Kensington Hawthorne's reign of terror was Dino Balducci, the owner of the cardiac syncopation medical spa and music lounge. A mere three months after Balducci initially denied Hawthorne a gig at his establishment due to the musician's insistence that he play in the nude, Balducci's body was found in his Brooklyn townhome. Coroners reported that he had been strangled with a thin, sturdy garrote that left abrasions around his larynx police never found or identified the murder weapon. But seriously, dear listener, it was definitely piano wire, right? Had to be. Back me up on this. <clears throat> After Balducci was Alexi Dumaine, an experimental pianist and Juilliard dropout. According to eyewitnesses, Dumaine likely attracted Hawthorne's ire on November 2nd, 1993, the very evening of his death. Dumaine was celebrating a successful recital by spending a long evening at the Ember Cellar Piano Bar. There he was, knocking back cocktails and drunkenly heckling Hawthorne's performance, which consisted entirely of ill-advised smooth jazz motorhead covers. At 1 a.m., Hawthorne finished his performance with an unsolicited encore, and Dumaine, now lacking a target, paid his tab and began the long stagger back home. Unbeknownst to him, Hawthorne, having hastily packed up and sprinted out of the bar, was trailing a block behind. According to police reports, Hawthorne likely slipped into Dumain's unlocked apartment, quickly subdued the intoxicated musician, dragged him over to his upright piano, and began slamming his head into the keys, staining the ebony and ivory red with blood. The din of this confrontation was obscured not by walls or distance, but by the fact that Dumaine specialized in an avant-garde style of music he called primal pugilistic tone clusters, better known as slamming his fist onto the keys and screaming. These sounds, therefore, were normal for him. Should any of his neighbors realize that he was actually being violently murdered, they may very well have actually been happy to have let it happen. The bodies continued to pile up. Rather than targeting marginalized members of society or random civilians, Kensington Hawthorne exclusively targeted figures in, or tangential to, the New York music scene. Fear gripped conservatories and performance venues in the region. Guitarists worried that they would be garroted with their own strings. Oboists feared that they would be gutted with their own reed knives. Violists felt reasonably safe, knowing that nobody pays attention to the violas anyway. When Manhattan music critic Kerry Townsend was found burned alive on a pyre made of his own manuscripts, the NYPD began to suspect a pattern. When recording magnate Neil Lauren was thrown out of the window of his penthouse onto the street below, they, the press, and the public alike knew that this was the work of a serial murderer. In their early coverage of Kensington Hawthorne's exploits, the New York news media struggled to find a name for this unknown killer, experimenting with monikers like The Piano Prowler, The Musical Marauder, and That Guy What Kills People in the Music Business. Apparently bolstered by the attention and presumably determined to get a more interesting nickname for himself, Kensington Hawthorne began to strike with greater frequency. Estimates place Hawthorne's body count during 1994 alone as being somewhere between 12 to 15 murders. Those who knew Kensington stated that he became more erratic and unpredictable during this time, yo yoing between bouts of strange contentment and wild paranoia. Notably, he responded to a pizza delivery by detaining the delivery driver at Knife Point, demanding to know who sent him. Convinced that the police, the recording industry, and the busker outside of his apartment were hot on his trail, Kensington staged a false flag threat against himself. In January of 1995, Kensington took the body of his most recent victim, jazz clarinetist Leonard Croft, gutted him, and took said guts back to his apartment. There, he festooned his home with Croft's organs and wrote the words, You're next on the wall in blood. After this, he washed himself off, left to dispose of his blood-stained clothing and returned back home where he pretended to walk in on this grisly scene for the first time retrospectives on the Kensington Hawthorne case note several flaws in this plan first making threats against potential victims was not part of the smooth jazz killer's MO second strands of Hawthorne's hair were found on the victim's entrails third Upon making this quote-unquote discovery in his apartment, Kensington responded by calmly walking out into the hallway, at which point he flatly proclaimed, Oh my God, what is happening? This has never happened to me before, before striding back into his apartment and dialing 911. When the police arrived, Kensington became agitated giving a long and rambling statement about how the streets would run red with the blood of musicians and how the smooth jazz killer is coming for you all. Crime historian Amanda Lipinski notes that this is the first known usage of the phrase smooth jazz killer as a moniker. Evidently, Hawthorne had decided to try and guide how the press would refer to him. Perceptive listeners may have a number of questions about Kensington Hawthorne at this point, such as, Why didn't the cops catch this guy? Why did nobody suggest that Kensington was behind this? And, seriously, why the f*** did the cops not catch this guy? A handful of Kensington's colleagues and neighbors did, in fact, attempt to report him to the police, citing his increasing paranoia, his love of the spotlight, and his tendency to come back home at odd hours spattered in blood. These efforts went in vain. Despite the clumsiness of Kensington Hawthorne's murders, his suspicious behavior, and the fact that literally all of the evidence out there ever suggested that he was the one committing these killings, the police never caught him. Indeed, the New York Police Department never even considered the man a suspect. As somebody with no criminal record, as the son of a generous donor to the NYPD, and as an eccentric but otherwise unassuming artist who resembled 130 pounds of wet tissue paper, Hawthorne was considered to be, quote, too boring, too rich, and too much of a candy ass to be fingered as a person of interest in the case. Kensington's ability to escape scot free was doubtlessly a source of relief for him. However, the fact that nobody was even considering him as a potential suspect appeared to get under his skin. People close to Kensington noted that, as the Smooth Jazz Killer investigation continued, he somehow became even more unhinged. In Bebop and Blood, crime historian Amanda Lipinski cites several anecdotes from members of Hawthorne's audience. According to one listener, Kensington stopped his performance mid-song to go on an extended rant about how geniuses are never recognized in their time. On another occasion, Kensington opened his act by reading off a list of every murder in New York City and New Jersey committed in the past six months and whispering, It could be you next! into his microphone. Multiple eyewitnesses claim that Kensington would often refuse to play at all during his gigs, instead going into graphic detail about how he could exsanguinate everyone in the room without getting caught, then hurling his mic stand into the audience and stomping off of the stage. Kensington needed more than the thrill of violence in his life. He needed attention. And he had just the plan to get it. Throughout the latter half of 1995, Kensington Hawthorne worked on a project he called the Magnum Opus Experience, which he claimed would be a multimedia performance that would change his audience's lives forever. After struggling to find a venue that would be willing to host the experience, Kensington managed to book a gig at the Mezzo Dinner Theater. It satisfied all of his needs. It was reasonably large. He hadn't yet burned any bridges with the theater's owner, Trevor Carson. And, even better, Mr. Carson was willing to follow any dubiously legal instructions that Kensington gave him in exchange for a hefty bribe. The magnum opus experience attracted a small but significant amount of buzz from jazz aficionados in New York, who by this point viewed Kensington Hawthorne's performances with the same morbid curiosity one might have towards a train wreck or public execution. Questions about the nature of the performance began to fly among the scene. These went tantalizingly unanswered. Kensington refused to provide details about the endeavor to the press saying instead that the performance would speak for itself. As the day of the magnum opus experience drew ever nearer, Hawthorne began to release a limited advertising run for it. This marketing campaign gave some hints as to the nature of the concert, with taglines like, The artistic experience of your life, I'm going to murder you, A night that will never be forgotten, And, this is not a joke, I am literally going to murder everyone in the audience and I am going to murder them with fire. These hints, however, only further deepened the mystery of Kensington Hawthorne's latest venture. What could possibly happen at the magnum opus experience? After weeks of feverish waiting, December 8th, the night of Kensington Hawthorne's concert, finally rolled around. The Mezzo's doors opened, and the curious audience filed in. The lights lowered. The Mezzo's doors closed, and Trevor Carson surreptitiously locked them. The stage lights went up, and Kensington walked out to uproarious but largely sarcastic applause. After the ironic cheers from the audience died down, Kensington sat down at his piano and began his performance. "'You could say that he really killed. "'You could even say that he really burned the house down. "'One might even go so far as to say "'that Kensington really rigged his piano with a flamethrower "'and began blasting gouts of fire at the audience "'engulfing them in a petrochemical inferno "'that claimed the lives of over two dozen innocent people. "'As the first concert goer went up in flames, "'the audience broke out into a panicked rush towards the exit.' As they pounded at the theater's unyielding doors, their screams of fear and agony clashed with Hawthorne's berserk screams and maniacal laughter, all the while backed by the constant whooshing of the sadistic musician's Steinway-mounted flamethrower. As the crush of people flailed against the doors, the floorboards and walls of the Mezzo Dinner Theater ignited, engulfing the entire building in flames. Satisfied with the carnage that he had wrought, Kensington Hawthorne ran backstage, hoping to duck out of a fire exit and flee into the night. It was here that a vital mistake in Kensington's machinations became evident. When being interrogated by the NYPD in the following weeks, Mezzo's proprietor Trevor Carson admitted that Kensington Hawthorne had given him a sum of $50,000, promising another payment if Carson made sure that nobody could get into or out of the theater during the performance. Unbeknownst to Hawthorne, Carson interpreted these instructions literally, and not only locked the main entrances to the building, but also barred the rear entrances and fire escapes. While the surviving members of the audience were eventually able to smash through the front doors and fire exits of the theater, Kensington, alone and lacking in anything resembling upper or lower body strength, was unable to break out of the now-burning building. What was worse... Carson recently had the backstage area treated with Devil's Mistake brand floor wax. In order to provide its shine and slipping hazard qualities, said wax contained lawsuit inducingly extreme levels of benzene, toluene, and something called ultra turbo kerosene. When the fire department finally managed to douse the blaze and comb the Mezzo Dinner Theater for survivors, they found Kensington Hawthorne's remains backstage. Fire Inspector Dan Greeley stated that Hawthorne had, quote, "...partially melted into the emergency exit." At long last, the smooth jazz killer's reign of terror had come to an end. What has happened since then? After being scraped off of the fire exit of the Mezzo Dinner Theater, Kensington Hawthorne was buried at the Hawthorne family plot in upstate New York. While the decision to bury him at all was met with shock and anger from Manhattan's chattering classes, Reginald Hawthorne responded by proclaiming that anyone with such little regard for the inconvenience of human life was a Hawthorne through and through, and that at this point, cremating his son seemed redundant. Reginald, for his part, continued to terrorize his family, colleagues, and domestic servants alike for nearly two decades after. He died in 2014, at the age of 100, when he decided to end his life by getting into a fistfight with his personal white whale, the 8th Avenue Express, better known as the A-Train. Mezzo dinner theater proprietor Trevor Carson was sentenced to 25 years in prison for criminal negligence, being an accessory to murder, and conspiracy to hide weaponry in a piano. He was released in 2021. Within a week, his corpse was found dismembered and heavily burned in front of the former site of the Mezzo Dinner Theater, which is, unfortunately, now known as the St. Aloysius Gonzaga Academy, an elite kindergarten commonly attended by children of Manhattan financial executives. The Lake cudgel music scene died out in the early 2000s. The town is currently home to a thorium refinery run by Pleasant's Chemical. With that, the tale of the smooth jazz killer is done. While Kensington Hawthorne may be dead, however, the legacy and trauma left by his violence shall live on forever. And thus, dear listeners, I would like to end this episode by reminding you all that every musician harbors constant thoughts of terrible violence and can never be trusted. This has been Liminal Criminals. I'm Sam Putnam. I'll see you next time. And remember... When they sing, the world dances. Liminal Criminals was originally a true crime podcast by Liminal Studios. It was originally researched, written, and created by Sam Putnam. It is edited for broadcast and distribution with the generous support of the Thonic Riviera Government and Deep Self-Preservation League. Up next, I'll be bringing you the news with another installment of Studio Community Worldwide Radio. Also, Krista, if you're listening, could you please come back to the studio? I've had three people drop by today saying that you're supposed to duel them to the death at high noon. Liminal Criminals is a fictional podcast by SCWR Productions. It is written and edited by Sam Putnam. It is co-written by Krista Golden. Our theme song is Thonic Riviera by Cornu Amonis. Our in-house composer is Cornu Follow us on Twitter at LiminalCast, or like us on Facebook. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Tell your friends about us. Reflect on the dopamine rush that you get when you open a can of sardines. Or is that just a me thing? All links are in the show notes.